Well, if you've got your Bible, turn it to John chapter 11, and we're going to be in verse 45. In this, the second week of our series on the Gospel of John. Now, we're going to cover a lot of territory, so you're going to have to keep up with me, but there's a lot packed into these last 11 chapters, and there's a whole lot packed into these verses that we're going to cover today. The interesting thing about John is that John, while interested in telling us as much as he possibly can about Jesus, isn't always great about giving detail. As a matter of fact, if you compare his gospel to the other three gospels, you can get a little frustrated that he leaves out a lot of information and it leaves you wondering, okay, what else happened? What's going on behind the scenes? And he's pretty sparse in details because he's only interested in one thing, and that's to reveal who Jesus was and what he came to do. And you'll see that as we move through these chapters, there's a lot of things that don't get told to us. And we're left kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. But if you recall, in last week's lesson, we covered a pretty incredible event, and it was the raising of of Lazarus, this life-to-death experience of this man who had died, this friend of Jesus, and he had been in the grave for four days. We know from the text that his body would have already begun begun to rot and begin to smell, and yet Jesus says, roll away the stone, and then he gives a pretty interesting command. He tells them to unbind him and let him go, because what happened when they rolled away the stone and Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, was he came forth. This guy, wrapped in grave cloths, came out of the tomb with great difficulty and then stood there waiting for somebody to let him loose. Somebody to remove the grave clothes that held him bound. This was an incredible miracle, and it left everybody in the crowd stunned. And and again, John doesn't give us much details. He doesn't tell us the reaction of the crowd, but it indicates that everybody just stood there and watched until Jesus said, unbind him. Let the guy go. Set him free from what binds him. And that's exactly what happened. And it reminds us of so many of the passages that Paul wrote that tell us as believers that we've got to let go of those things of our past, those things before Christ. Listen to what he said to the Colossians. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So here's Paul telling the Colossian believers that, hey, you're in Christ but you still have the vestiges of your old self before Christ. Much like Lazarus standing there in those grave cloths, which were permeated by his own body fluids as he rotted in the grave and also from the stench, and yet they needed to be removed. Otherwise, he was carrying the stink of death with him out of the grave. And that's exactly what Paul is telling the Colossians, and by extension, you and I today. See, we're told to put these things away. We're not to take them with us. When we come out of the grave, when Christ sets us free from sin and death, we're not to carry the old ways of life with us. But we do, right? We, we don't fully get rid of them. And yet, in a way, we've get, been given the power to do so through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. But we have to choose to do so. I love this, this passage from Romans where Paul writes, the night is almost gone. Now listen to the terminology he uses and compare it to what we read last week in chapter 10. You're going to see a lot of the same usage as Paul 
picks up where Jesus left off. He says, the night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living because we belong to the day. We must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you gotta stop and think, why did he get so specific about some of these details? You know, he's writing to the Roman believers or the believers living in Rome and he's telling them, hey, you gotta give up these wild parties and you gotta give up the drunkenness and the sexual promiscuity. Why is he saying that? Because they hadn't. They were still living their old lifestyle even though they had come to faith in Christ. And again, it's that picture of Lazarus standing there in soiled grave cloths and Jesus saying, unbind him and let him go. Get rid of the old things. Get rid of the things that mark you as once dead because you are now alive. So here's Lazarus. And what we know from last week is that he got a new lease on life, right? He, he was dead and then he was given life. But here's the, the reality. It was temporal. His new life was temporal. It wasn't an eternal life. He didn't get a resurrected body. He just got his old body restored. And he would grow old. He would get sick. And he would eventually die. So what he got from Jesus was a restoration of his life, his old life. But he didn't get a new life, not at that point. And see, this poor guy is going to have to die a second time. We don't know when he died and we don't know what he died of, but he ultimately did die again. And there was no one there to resuscitate him this time. What happened to Lazarus was meant to foreshadow something far greater that was to come just days later. And we're getting closer and closer to that event as we move through these last chapters of the book of John. One of the interesting things about Lazarus's death is it was totally ineffective. Now, what do I mean by that? It was effective in the sense that he died, but it was ineffective in that it didn't do anything for Lazarus. Every man and woman who has ever been born and lived has had to pay for their sins. We know the scriptures say the wages of sin is death. And, and yet when he paid for his sin by dying, it did him no good. It didn't, it didn't restore him to a right relationship with God. See, we can't die for ourselves. We can't sacrifice our own lives. Our death does not satisfy the righteousness and the holiness of a just God. And that's why for him to truly be renewed and revived and resurrected and receive new life, something else was going to have to happen, which would include the very same man who stood outside the tomb and called him out. See, Jesus Christ didn't just come to give Lazarus restored life, he came to give him new life, just like he came to give you and I new life. Because of his sin, Lazarus's sin, just like Mary, his sister, and Martha, his sister, he deserved death. He didn't deserve to live. None of us deserve life, but it's been graciously given to us by God. We're given breath. We're, we're, we come out of the womb. We live. We enjoy life, and yet we don't deserve it. What we deserve is death, which is the curse that fell upon all humanity because of the sins of Adam and Eve. See, his, his death was ineffective. His death could do nothing. He got exactly what he deserved, and graciously, Jesus extended his life 
in order, as he said, to bring glory to the Father and to reveal the power of God through him. See, we know the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus came to give eternal life. Jesus did not come to set up his kingdom on earth at that moment. He did not come to set the Israelites free from Roman rule. He didn't come to to put those disciples in positions of power and prominence in his royal administration. That's not why he came. He came to bring eternal life. Lazarus needed it. Mary and Martha needed it. Every one of his disciples needed it. The people that were standing there mourning because of the death of Lazarus, they all needed eternal life. And Jesus was constantly offering himself as the key to eternal life. So if you look at verse 45, we pick up where it left off because what we're told by John is that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Now, there's, there's something interesting going on here because every time John uses this term, the Jews, he's, he's talking about a specific group. We tend to read that and we think all the Jews, the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. But John is very specific in his usage of that term. And we'll see that in a second. But it says that whoever these Jews were, many of them believed. Why? Because of what they saw. They were there. They were standing in the crowd as Lazarus came out in those grave clothes and they set him free and he was completely restored and everybody was blown away. They believed. But some of them, some of this same group of individuals didn't believe. At least that's the inference. Because what did they do? They went to the Pharisees and they told them what Jesus had done. They made a beeline to the religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, and told them what had happened. Now we don't know what they said, We don't know how they said it, but they went and told exactly what happened. Some believed, some didn't believe. Now, who are we talking about? Well, this is a reference by John to the Jewish religious leadership, which included the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Council of the Seventy. It it included the Essenes, the scribes, this group of men who were the religious leaders, the religious elite of Israel, who were, for the most part, totally opposed to Jesus Christ. And yet they followed him everywhere. These these men were obsessed with Jesus because of what they saw him doing to their way of life. And they had Jesus, by this point, under 24-hour surveillance. They had spies following him everywhere. They were in the crowds everywhere he went. And they reported back to the leadership, Caiaphas the high priest and the Sanhedrin, that council of 70 men, they would report everything they saw because they were looking for something to pin on Jesus so that they could have him put to death. That's where this thing has gone. That's how great the conflict has become between Jesus and these religious leaders. And the truth is, what's amazing about this story is that Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. Nobody had ever done that before. And the word got out and the word came back to them. And some of their own, these spies, turned into believers. But others didn't. They were skeptical. They were resentful of Jesus and what he was doing and how the crowds were worshiping him. And so they went back and they told their compatriots back in Jerusalem, hey, this thing's getting squirrely. This thing's getting out of control. Here's what he did. Now, you got to keep in mind, they were eyewitnesses to what Jesus did. They, They saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. They go back and report what happened. And you see nothing in the text 
that shows that these leaders in Israel, Caiaphas and his fellow members of the Sanhedrin, none of them went, really? He raised somebody from the dead? There's no shock, there's no awe, there's nothing that they show that reveals that they were even remotely interested in what might have happened in Bethany. No, they don't care about it at all. All they care about is they want to get rid of this Jewish rabbi from the city of Nazareth. They want him gone. They want him out of their territory. They want him out of their lives. And they're going to do everything they can to eliminate Jesus. And by eliminate, I mean put him to death. So what happens? It says the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together, the Sanhedrin. They got the gang together. And they began to debate. And some said, what are we going to do? What are we going to do about this guy? This man performs many signs. That's kind of an understatement, right? I mean, he's healed people of leprosy. He's called, caused people who were blind to see, the lame to walk. He's called a man who was dead for four days out of the grave. And they say, this man performs many signs. He's pretty amazing. If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. You sense the fear. You sense the animosity. They don't know what to do. They're, they're at their wits end. And then they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe. The Romans will come. This is the key. This is what's driving their behavior. The Romans are going to come and take away both our place and our nation. You see, they're driven by fear. Not fear of Jesus, but fear of what Jesus is going to cause. If he keeps this up and more and more people continue to follow him, He's going to cause a revolution which is going to bring down the heat from the Romans. And they knew they had no hope if the Romans stepped in to put down what they saw as a rebellion. And so they're scared. They don't know what to do, but they're going to do something because they are afraid of the impact that Jesus is having on, on what? Our place. They mention our nation. They don't really care about the nation. They care about themselves. They only care about what Jesus is doing to their way of life. You see, there's this conflict of interest, interest again taking place in this passage between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus came to bring eternal life. They already had a life. They were satisfied with the life they had. They didn't want anything to change. And so they stiff-armed Jesus at every turn. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and they could care less. All they cared about was preserving their way of life. And again, sometimes we read these passages and we just blow right past them, and we don't think about the fact that their own people came back and told them what happened, and they didn't seem to even remotely give an interest. All they cared about was, man, if we let this go on, we're going to lose our way of life. These men were rich. These men were powerful. These men were reverenced by the people. They were influential. They, they were celebrities, so to speak. And their world was getting rocked by Jesus because Jesus was causing the people to question everything. And you remember in his, his Sermon on the Mount, he, he made so many references to what true righteousness looks like. In another point, he said, if your righteousness is not greater than that of the Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom. See, Jesus came 
to offer a different kind of righteousness, the only kind of righteousness that will satisfy a holy God, and that's his righteousness, which he gives to us through salvation. But these men are upset. These men see Jesus as a constant threat to their way of life, and that's why they are so vehemently opposed to him and are doing whatever they can to catch him in some sin or some law that he's broken so that they can have him put to death by the Romans. But it's interesting. They're all arguing. They're all debating. They're frustrated. They don't know what to do. And so Caiaphas, the high priest, one of their own, said something interesting. He calms the group and he says, you know nothing at all. He talks down to his peers. He says, you don't know anything. You don't know what you're talking about. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. See, he, he kind of speaks up and says, guys, you don't understand. If we have to put this one guy to death in spite of his miracles, in spite of everything that he's done, in spite of the crowds that follow, follow him, if we have to put him to death in order to save the nation, that's what we're going to do. Now, again, does he really care about the nation? No, he cares about Caiaphas and his friends. He only cares about what he stands to lose, not the people. And yet he tells them this statement, and there's probably silence in the room as they all sit there and go, this, this guy's pretty sharp. This guy's pretty wise. He knows what he's talking about. But here's what's really interesting. He, he gives this statement about the fact that it's better for one to die that all should not perish. And yet what we're told by John is that he, he actually is prophesying and he doesn't even know it. See, this is pretty amazing because it, it reveals that God is in control of everything we're reading in these passages. This is not happenstance. It's not fate. It's not kismet or karma. This is the sovereign will of God taking place because John says that he was actually prophesying. He was speaking on behalf of God, even though he was opposed to the son of God. Now, did he know it? No. And yet what he said was true. Caiaphas thinks what he's saying is, is that if we kill Jesus, it's going to preserve our way of life. But what he really was saying on behalf of God was Jesus' death would provide eternal life. Yes, one man was going, have, going to have to die on behalf of the rest. Because under God's economy, everybody's condemned to death. And if Jesus doesn't die, nobody gets saved. So here's Caiaphas, the high priest, revered by the people, held in high esteem by his peers. He makes this statement and he's actually prophesying on behalf of God. And he speaks the truth. Jesus was going to have to die. And his death would prove beneficial to the Jews, but also to to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, to you and I. See, there's amazing stuff happening in these passages as we work our way through them as God, through the voice of John, the pen of John, reveals to us these amazing truths. See, Jesus would die for the nation. He would die for the people of Israel, but he would also die for the Samaritan woman. He would die for the Gentiles living in Rome, the Gentiles living in Ephesus and Galatia and all those places where Paul would later take the gospel and many of those people would come to faith. Jesus Christ would die so that not everyone would have to die. So Caiaphas was right. He just didn't know it. <laughs> 
See, he would die, not just for the nation only, but to gather into the children of God who are scattered abroad, or gather others, gather Gentiles, gather um, Africans, North Americans, South Americans, people from all over the world of every tribe, nation, and tongue would come to and are coming to faith in Christ. Why? Because of his death because of his burial, because of his resurrection, because of his ascension. All of this was true. And here's the cool thing. Here's what John told, wrote in John chapter 10. These are the words of Jesus spoken to the religious leaders about him being the good shepherd, the shepherd of Israel. Here's what he said. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. Just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not in the sheepfold. In other words, not just Jews, but Gentiles. And he goes on and says, I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. See, Jesus came to die for humanity, not just for the Israelites. And these men like Caiaphas and, and uh, Nicodemus, they, they were all obsessed with the Jewish nation. And the only time they cared about any Gentile is if he converted to Judaism. And yet Jesus says, no, I have sheep who are not of this flock, and I'm going to bring them in also. And his death would pay the price for not just the Jews, but those who are not Jews. Gathering into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So what do they do? How do they react? They plan to kill him. They plan to put him to death. They've already tried to stone him. We saw that last week. They've on multiple occasions tried to arrest him, but now they're serious. Now they're intent on getting rid of Jesus and having him put to death. And so verse 54 says, Jesus no longer walked openly among them. He left their vicinity. He didn't hang out in the vicinity of these Jewish religious leaders, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Jesus went east towards the Jordan River. We don't know where Ephraim was, but Jesus vacated Jerusalem and he moved out into the wilderness and he got away from these Jewish religious leaders. Now, did they send spies after him? Possibly. They were always looking for them, for him. And here's where it gets interesting is because Jesus goes out there and then the Passover comes. The Passover of the Jews is at hand. We're moving into that last week of Jesus' life. Remember, the last 11 chapters cover, for the most part, from chapter 12 on, seven days. Seven days of Jesus' life. And so we're getting close to the Passover and everybody goes to the Passover in Jerusalem to purify themselves. And everybody's going to be looking for Jesus. And everybody, for the most part, meaning these Jewish religious leaders, they know that he, being a good Jew, is going to show up sometime during the Passover because it was required. It was a mandatory feast, and every male Jew had to show up. And so they were looking for Jesus. So six days before the Passover, this tells us we're looking at a 13-day period of time. This is the Saturday before Passover. Jesus goes to Bethany. Remember Bethany? Bethany is where Lazarus was raised from the dead. 
So he goes to Bethany. Let me show you where it is again. Bethany's about two miles east of Jerusalem, and this little town is going to play a major role. It's already played a major role because that's where the miracle concerning Lazarus took place. So Jesus goes back there. He goes back to Bethany, and it becomes kind of his jumping off point for his triumphal entry as he begins to move to Jerusalem for the final days of his life. And there in Bethany, remember he's been away for a little bit of time. He's back in Bethany. Everybody remembers what happened. Lazarus is still there. I conjecture that Lazarus has become a a celebrity. You know, Lazarus is kind of the rock star of Bethany because everybody knows this guy was dead and now he's alive. And I guarantee there was some really entrepreneurial Jew who was selling tickets to the gravesite. And he was taking people on tours and taking them by Lazarus' house. He was a celebrity. And he and his two sisters throw Jesus a party. Why? Because they're grateful. Jesus did a miracle. Jesus brought him back to life and they throw him a party. And here's Jesus reclining with Lazarus at the table. This is a a feast. It's a festival. And Mary, one of the sisters, is so grateful that it says she takes a pound of expensive ointment, pure nard. I have no clue what nard is, but I know it's expensive and I know it's aromatic. And she takes it and she anoints Jesus' feet with it. And then she wipes his feet with her hair. This tells you a whole lot about Mary that she loved Jesus that much. She was so grateful that she expended this incredible amount of money for this perfume and then anointed the feet of Jesus. She washed his feet with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it says the house was filled with the fragrance. But look at this, but Judas. Here we get a glimpse of what's about to happen in the days ahead. But Judas, this is not a good point in time. This is not a statement that's going to lead to anything good. This is a negative statement. But Judas, but Judas what? We're going to see this incredible conflict between Mary and Judas. Look what happens. What does Mary do? What does Judas do? She shows gratitude. She's grateful. He shows greed because he's going to step in and go, hey, what are you doing wasting all the money? You could have sold this and we could have fed the poor. But the text goes on to tell us that he had no business or or interest in feeding the poor. He was a thief. He stole money from the treasury of Jesus and the disciples and used it on himself. He was greedy. He was self-serving. She's selfless. He was all about Judas. He was in it for what he could get out of it. And what's Mary doing? She is giving the most of what she had, the most expensive thing she had, to bless Jesus. She's sacrificial. He's sanctimonious. He looks righteous. He says the good thing. Oh, we could have given this money to the poor, but he had no intentions, John said. He's just playing righteous, but he's really not. She's a believer. She truly believes Jesus is who he says he is. She's seen him raise her brother from the dead, but so has Judas, and yet he's just an opportunist. He's going to take advantage of his relationship with Jesus to profit. And he saw an opportunity. Had she sold that nard, he could have stolen the money from the treasury and lined his own pockets. Well, it goes on. She's a worshiper. She anoints his feet. She, she goes, he goes on, Jesus goes on and says, she's preparing basically my body for burial. She, she's doing an act of worship. And yet 
He's a thief. What a difference between these two. She's an anointer, and we know that he becomes the betrayer. He becomes the one who sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. So Jesus says, leave her alone. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. We're not selling anything. She's going to use that, and she's going to keep whatever's left over, and she's going to use it at my burial. There's a purpose behind that nard, not just to anoint me now, but to anoint me later. And he clearly references his own death and burial. And then he says, the poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. Guys, I'm not going to be here much longer. Remember, he said, as long as you have the light with you, walk in the light, but the darkness is coming. And we're just days away from his death when they're going to be plunged into abject darkness because of the loss of Jesus. So it says in verse 9, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also because of Lazarus. Why? Because Lazarus is a rock star. Lazarus was raised from the dead. They can't wait to see the once dead Lazarus standing up and walking around. He's a miracle. He's a walking miracle. And so Jesus, the combination of Jesus and Lazarus is attracting people from all over. And this large crowd is going to play a significant role in the rest of the story as Bethany is going to play a significant role. Because this guy was the guy that had been raised from the dead. So here's, here's a great glimpse of the kind of people we're talking about when we talk about the Jewish religious leaders. What do they decide to do with Lazarus? It says they plan to put him to death as well. Not only are they going to kill Jesus, they're going to have to kill Lazarus because he's attracting too big a crowd. He's become a celebrity. He's attracting people. He's a living proof of Jesus' power. So what do they decide to do? Kill him. Not only is it profitable to kill one man to save the nation, it's profitable to kill two. Let's get rid of this guy too. And yet, what does it say? But on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Again, this is most likely a reference to many of the Jewish religious leaders. Once they saw Lazarus for themselves, those who weren't there the day he came out of the tomb, once they went there and saw the crowds and saw this man walking around, they began to believe. And so you have a split taking place on this religious council as some begin to believe and some doubt and the High priest Caiaphas is trying to maintain order and control, and he still wants to eliminate Jesus. So we're told in verse 12, the next day, what day would that be? Well, we'll see in just a second. See, John's very specific on these kinds of details of when these things are happening. He says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. When and word got out that Jesus is leaving Bethany and he's going to come to Jerusalem. It's only about two miles and he's got to go to Jerusalem because of the Passover. So we're told next day, we're told a large crowd, we're told they had been at this feast. What feast? Well, it's the feast at Lazarus's house. So John is giving you and I some, some pretty sh small details that we need that are going to play a part in everything that happens. The next day is Sunday. This is the first day of the week. It's after the Sabbath on Saturday, so it's Sunday. It's the feast he's referring to is not the feast of the Passover. It's the feast held in Bethany in the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. 
And the crowd he's talking about are those people who not only had been there when Jesus was raised from the dead, but had come to the house at the feast. See, the presence of Lazarus, the presence of Jesus, the one who raised him from the dead, had created a stir, and that's the crowd. And that crowd is really essential to everything that happens next. And for years, I never saw this. I never really understood what was going on because I've always been enamored that when Jesus showed up in Jerusalem, how everybody started worshiping him. Everybody started throwing down palm leaves. Look at what happens. It says, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Those people that had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead, those people who had been outside the door of Lazarus's house had begun to go around Jerusalem and telling everybody about this man named Jesus. Now, he already had a reputation, but when word got out of what he did for Lazarus, it changed everything. And it spread like wildfire. That's why in verse 13, it says they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. I've always wondered what in the world possessed these people to come out and greet Jesus in this way. It's because of the testimony of those people who saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. The people who had been outside the doors of Lazarus's house at that feast. They had come and they had stirred up the crowd and they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, some of what's going on here is just part of the natural order of things during the Passover. This statement is from the Hallel. These are the, the psalms that were sung as people made their way, the pilgrims made their way into Jerusalem. They would sing this as part of a song. But now they're applying it, at least many in the crowd are applying it to Jesus. They're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is our king. What are they saying? Whether they realize it or not, what they're shouting is, this is Jesus. And again, these are the people who came from Bethany, the eyewitnesses of the miracle. They had seen him raise Jesus from the dead. They had watched the glory of God be manifested through what Jesus did. Now they're glorifying Jesus. They're saying, this guy's got to be him. This, he, he's got to be the Messiah. He's got to be the king. And they shout Hosanna, which literally means give salvation now. Now, when they shouted that, what were they hoping for? Well, it's pretty clear they thought him to be their king, and they were hoping he was going to save them by setting up his kingdom. They call him their king. And, and I, I would love to have been there to see the faces of the disciples as all of this was happening. And remember, they were afraid to go back to Jerusalem. They were afraid to go into Judea because they thought he was going to get killed and they would be killed with him. But now he's got these crowds and they're all shouting his praises and they're calling him the son of David and they're shouting, Hosanna, save us. You're our king. And they were on cloud nine. Everything they had dreamed of, everything they had hoped for seemed to be coming to fruition. Jesus Christ, at that moment in their minds, was getting ready to set up his kingdom. What else could it be? What else could happen? See, all the things that Jesus had said about, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be tried, and I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. All of that was forgotten at this point. They weren't thinking about any of those things. Everything was looking great. And they understood, because they were good Jewish young men, they understood that 
This is prophecy. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Look at Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king has come to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. How is Jesus going into town on the foal of a donkey? And I think these men, if not all of them, many of them probably remembered this prophecy. And yet they didn't fully understand what it meant. They didn't fully understand who Jesus was. And the text tells us they would never really understand it until Jesus died and was resurrected. We're told in verse 18, the reason this crowd, these people, both those who had come from Bethany and those who were in Jerusalem already, the reason they were acting the way they were is because they had seen this sign. What sign? Lazarus. I have a feeling Lazarus was walking with Jesus. He was part of the retinue. Mary and Martha were there. This whole crowd had come from Bethany with Jesus, and then there were people already in Jerusalem, and they all kind of met outside the gates. So again, what do the Pharisees do? They panic. You see that we're gaining nothing. The whole world has gone after them. And in their minds, they're panicked because they just see everybody. Now keep in mind, at the Passover, people from all over the known world migrated, pilgrimaged to Jerusalem if they were Jews, if they had converted to Judaism. There were people from every nation and tongue who were there in that town. It was a melting pot. And that's why they say the whole world, everybody's going after this guy. He is attracting a huge following. And again, they don't know it, but they're actually prophesying because that's exactly what's going to happen. Because in the very next verse, it says, now among those who went up to the worship at the feast were some Greeks. What are Greeks doing there? They're believing Greeks. They're, they're proselytes. They've become Jews. They have changed their faith from a pagan faith to the Jewish faith. And they're there for the Passover. And it, this link between the world and the Greeks is exactly what Jesus came to do. He didn't just come to save the Jews. He came to save Gentiles as well, as we said earlier. So these Greeks come and they want to meet Jesus. They, they want to see this man who raised this other man from the dead. They, they are enamored. They want to know. And so they go to Philip. And yet they never get to see Jesus. They never get to meet Jesus. But Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. We're near the end. I don't have time right now to meet with these Greeks, but you know what? When I finish what I'm ready to do and about to do, there'll be hope for them. That will be the time for them to meet me. After I've finished the will of my father, after I've completed the task that I've come, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. And this is a reference to his death. As he's lifted up on the cross, he will be glorified through death, but also through life. An amazing statement by Jesus. And it reminds me of what he said to the Samaritan woman. We looked at this last semester. He tells her the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. Samaritans, Greeks, people of every tribe, nation, and tongue, not just the Jews. 
But see, Jesus had to finish what he began. Jesus had to go to the cross. And he goes on and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He had to die. He had to finish the job given to him by his father. And then he goes on and says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. See, Jesus is going to be calling people to a commitment to leave behind the life you've always lived, marked by death and hopelessness, and embrace the new life offered through him. There's a transaction that has to take place. There's the giving up in order to take on. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. He came to give eternal life. See, guys, this is the key. Eternal life is what we're here for. Not this life. This life is, is great. This life is a blessing. I'm glad I have it. I love my wife. I love my kids and grandkids. But this life is not all there is. Eternal life is the ultimate reward. And we lose sight of that far too often. See, we sometimes get confused that we think what Jesus came to give us was our best life now, as Joel Osteen sometimes says, or always says. But that's not why Jesus came. He didn't come to give us this life on steroids, a better version of our old life, new and improved. He came to give us a new life altogether, a new life that's marked by these things, a new nature. See, when I come to faith in Christ and you came to faith in Christ, you received a new nature. You're going to one day receive a new body. I don't know about you, but I'm really happy about that. Uh, this body's wearing out. This body's not built for eternity. And I'm going to get a new one. I'm going to get a resurrected body that is built for eternity. And here's the most important thing. I get a renewed relationship with God. My relationship with God was flawed because of the sins of Adam and Eve. I am now, I was alienated from God. I was separated from God, but I've been restored because of Jesus Christ. See, this is, this is the key. This is the hope. This is why we believe what we believe. And that's why Jesus had to go to the cross in order to give us new life. And that new life comes at a high price. Not for me, not for you. But here's what we know. John would write in his very first letter after finishing the gospel, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. See, God sent his son to die in my place and your place. That was a high price to pay. Not only that, Peter writes, God paid a ransom to save you and me from the empty life we inherited from our ancestors. It was not paid for with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. See, what these people don't realize is that Jesus is just days away from hanging on the cross and yet him hanging on the cross is going to be the key to our future. The key to us having eternal life. And that's why in verse 27 it says, his soul is troubled. Well, yeah, your soul would be troubled if you had that lying in the future. See, the fact that Jesus was obedient doesn't mean he had to like it. It doesn't mean that he looked forward to it. His humanity grieved over the fact that he was going to have to go through incredible pain and suffering because Jesus knew what was coming. 
He knew everything that was going to happen to him. How did he know that? Because he had been told by the Father, and it was in the Scriptures. Isaiah prophesied in chapter 53, He, Jesus, the Messiah, was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. We, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet, what did God do? He laid on Jesus the sins of us all. See, Jesus knew where he was going. He knew what the destination was. He knew it was going to lead to crucifixion. And his soul was troubled. His soul was troubled because he knew it was going to be painful. He knew it was going to involve separation from his father for a point of time. But he says, for this purpose I've come to this very hour. This is the whole reason I came in the first place. And so he says, Father, glorify your name. See, the amazing thing about Jesus is that everything he did, he did to bring glory to the Father. It was never to bring glory to himself. He wasn't like the Pharisees. He didn't care about the praise of the people. He did everything to bring glory to God. And the, a voice came from heaven. God himself spoke out and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. What does he mean by that? Jesus' whole life had glorified his Father. Everything he did glorified his Father. But guess what? So would his death. His death would bring glory to God because his death was a gift from God, the greatest expression of the love of God. And it would bring glory to the Father. And Jesus tells the people in his hearing, he says, this voice has come for your sake and not mine. I already knew it. You needed to hear it. And I think he's really addressing this to the disciples then he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Things were about to change. There was a major shift about to take place. He says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he was revealing what kind of death he was going to die. See, his death would become the pivotal point, the fulcrum point for all eternity. The history of earth would change at that moment in time. How? Death and Satan would be defeated. You know, Satan's still walking the planet. Satan still has a lot of power, but he is already defeated. Otherwise, we couldn't come to faith in Christ. The righteous wrath of God is going to be satisfied. As soon as he gives up his life, God will be propitiated, satisfied. And, and the coolest thing is the criteria for judgment is now going to be set for eternity. It's Jesus. Those who believe in him and those who don't believe in him, believe in him. It will have everything to do with that and nothing else. And finally, the free gift of redemption would become available. Available to who? Jews and Gentiles alike. All because Jesus would be lifted up. So Jesus finally says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And he reminds them, this is why I came. They say, well, who is this son of man? Who are you talking about? Me. I'm the light of the world. I came to shine in the darkness. The one who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he's going. But while you have me, the light, walk in the light so that what? You can become sons of light. That's what this is all about. That's what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples, even though they're probably more excited about the fact that he's going to set up his kingdom. They're blown away by the crowds, and yet Jesus keeps talking about death. He keeps talking about being lifted up. There's confusion and conflict going on. But the only person who's not confused, the only person who's not conflicted is Jesus, because he knows what he has to do. So here's some things I want you to think about and talk about with your 
uh, table mates, if you get together via Zoom or in person, talk about them with your wife, get a friend together, talk about these things. Here's what I want you to discuss. In what ways can we walk in the light while surrounded by the darkness of this world? See, Jesus is telling you and I to walk in the light. We've been shown the light, but we sometimes find ourselves walking in the dark. I don't know about you, but these, this last year has been full of darkness, full of foreboding, full of depressing news, and it just continues. How do we walk in the light in the midst of this? Jesus admitted that his soul was troubled. How should that statement bring us hope? See, we're told in Hebrews that he has been tempted just like you and I in every way, yet without sin. Jesus was troubled. You get troubled. I get troubled. But guess what? We have hope. And we just have to contain ourselves and maintain our focus on the faithfulness of God. Finally, in verse 25, what do you think Jesus meant by loving or hating one's life? What might that look like for you and I today? And why is it so important? What is it about your life that you do need to hate? What is it about your life that you should love and be willing to give to God? See, he came to offer us change. He came to offer us hope. He came to offer us eternal life. Well, let me pray for us, and then I'll see you guys next week. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these men. I pray that you would bless them through this lesson. Father, may they pour over it. May they spend time in it. May they wrestle with it. I pray that they would take these questions and get with somebody else, even if it's just one person, and really pour over them so that, Father, we could fully appreciate what you have done for us through Jesus Christ. And I pray all this in his marvelous name. Amen. I'll see you guys next week.